I don't think an explanation of sin can wait. I don't think that's where God is leading us, and so that's what today is about. It feels really weird to have this open space in front of here, so if you want to come and sit and stretch out and take a nap, or I know you want to, Jen. It's all yours. Um, well, this, this stage is set up here because we had a performance last night in this space, and then we're also actually hosting Ashley Park's uh, athletic banquet here this week, and we love to use our space in that way to serve our, our core partners uh, for missional use like that, so that's what's going on. All right, yeah, so sin, sin is a difficult topic to address, and I think largely because of all the emotional baggage that we have around this, this topic, and, and even that word, emotions of shame and guilt and fear and anger. But the reason I know that we can't let a conversation about sin wait is if we didn't talk about sin, we're not going to talk about love. If we don't get sin right, we will not get love right, which means we're not going to get people right and we're not going to get our relationships right. If we minimize sin, we'll end up minimizing love, which means minimizing people and relationships. I guarantee you that the healthiest and the best relationships and friendships and marriages in the room are those that get real about sin and therefore are able to get real about love. I guarantee you. Steph and I have a long way to go, but when I think about our best seasons of growth and moving forward as a, as a married couple, they are seasons in which we've been able to name our sin to each other, to confess that sin, to find freedom from that sin, and to walk together in a new way of loving. Uh, those are the best times where we really deal with the worst stuff, right? Uh, in fact, if, if, that, if that whole concept of doing that in, in relationship, in a, in a marriage in particular, sounds really foreign, but maybe interesting to you, I would really encourage you, we have a marriage seminar coming up a month from now on June 15, led by the Tafts. It will be transformative for your marriage. So if you realize that that's a gap, that you need to learn how to do that better, how to listen to each other better, sign up for that, um, that seminar. Okay, so the late pastor and theologian Eugene Peterson, he wrote a lot about this. I learned a lot from him about this. He says in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, that a refusal to deal with sin is a refusal to deal with relationships. If we don't deal with relationships, we can't love. Love is the relational act par excellence, just as sin is the de-relational act par excellence. So if I say that I do not sin or that sin is a minor issue for me, in effect, I'm saying love is not high on my agenda. George Herbert, who's an English pastor and poet, well knew that sin and love had to be treated in parallel if either is to be comprehended in depth. There are two vast, spacious things, yet few there are that sound them, sin and love. If we refuse to deal with sin, if we don't get real with sin— what we're left with is fake morality and fake relationships. I don't think any of us want that. It's easier, maybe, but it's not, it's not true life, right? And whether we're talking about relationships with each other or our relationship with God, and both of those things 
are what John is going to address in his letter. A theme is a big topic for John in his letter as well as love. If anyone is sounding these things together, it is a letter of 1 John. And so that's what we're going today. This is our third week moving through this book, and we're just taking the next passage uh, starting in in John chapter 1 verse 8. And we're looking at this letter through the lens of fake belief. A big theme of John's is how do I embrace real faith, genuine faith, authentic faith, Faith that lives itself out uh, in the world. And, and what are the marks of that versus its fake counterpart? So today, we'll see that one mark of that real belief is the willingness to get real about sin. All right, so starting in verse 8 of First John. Uh, in fact, why don't you guys stand? It's just good to, to get our blood moving, to pay attention as we read this together. Or I'll read it. Go ahead and listen. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claimed we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is God's word to us this morning. Can I have a seat? You notice that John uses the word sin in every single sentence? (laughs) He really wants to talk about this. He really wants to get real about this thing called sin, But what in the world are we talking about when we talk about sin? Hey, that's the first thing I think that we should clarify. What does John mean? What do we mean? What what are we actually talking about? So just thinking about some instances in life, um, some examples, like is it it a sin uh, if, if the guy is sitting at the green light, not paying attention, but looking at his phone? And you know that if he doesn't look up, you're going to miss that green light. Is that a sin? (laughs) Super annoying. That's probably not a sin, right? It's frustrating, but no. Um, Is it a sin for someone to make and install a really confusing road sign? Again, I, I don't know why I often use driving analogies, but like, is it a sin to put up signs like this? Um, apparently, these are from Michigan, Mike. So I don't... I know there are a lot of geniuses in Michigan, but including some in the room, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) Counterproductive, confusing, not a sin. Is it a sin not to brush your teeth? You know, okay, harmful maybe, but not a sin. Is it a sin to eat a dessert called a sinful three-layer fudge poke cake? You know, no, (laughs) but it's interesting that where you see the word sin in our culture, it tends to be attached mostly to decadent desserts and sleazy novels. Like this is what we consider uh, sin. John is talking about something very, very different than these things that are annoying or counterproductive or even, even harmful in a sense. Um, the original word that he uses is this really rich word in the Greek called armatia. Armatia has a whole range of meanings Uh, that John is probably drawing on. But I think one really important and interesting one is uh, from Greek tragedy. In in the Greek tragedies, 
the hero or the protagonist, the anti-hero in some ways, would always have an harmatia, a, a fatal flaw that would produce a whole series of errors that would turn the story upside down and eventually lead to death and destruction. The fatal flaw that turns a story upside down. I think it's a good way of, of understanding sin. It's one of, the, one of the, the connotations that John was drawing on. But he, he understands John sees sin not just in relation to a human story, but in relation to God as well. That it's a fatal flaw in relation to who God is and who God, how God created the whole world to function. And we know how John understands this because he's written another book of the Bible, the Gospel of John. And he begins that book talking about God as the Logos, the one who's ordered all things and created all things and has a, a design for all things in our place within it, a blueprint for how life should work. And that God has created the world to function beautifully. One really good biblical word for that is shalom. And we've talked about shalom in this way before of, of all of these relationships with God and other people and myself and the rest of the world functioning in harmony and beauty and love. So we have communion with God and contentment with ourselves and care for others and we cultivate the world. In other words, the whole design of God for this world is love. Vibrant wholeness, flourishing harmony, beauty, and all these things. This is how it's supposed to be. And when we understand that and the biblical vision for the way things are supposed to be, then we'll get sin. Because sin is a parasite on this. Sin is vandalism of this. Sin is, is any failure to love as God has intended us to love. It's, it's hiding from God in that relationship. It's hating ourselves. It's harming each other. It's harnessing creation for my personal gain. One definition of sin that I love, it's from, I think, the best book on sin ever written called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Sin is Vandalism of Shalom. It, it is taking the beautiful design for life and our relationships and, and it's destroying that sometimes in small ways, sometimes in big ways. So sin, you may have understood sin, sin before as a list of prohibited activities. That is not it at all. It's not a list of shall nots. It's, it's anything that doesn't contribute and therefore does vandalism to God's beautiful design for everything, for all of our relationships, every aspect of life. So it's our failure to uphold and contribute to the beauty of God's creation. And our relationships, a failure to love, to be in right relationship with God, a failure to be in relationship with each other and my neighbors and the earth. So if you understand sin in that way, which is very comprehensive, right? Then we get a little bit more why it makes sense that John would say, if you say you don't sin, like what planet are you living on? Uh, you're not even close to understanding how the world works, how you work. The truth is not in you, and you're making God out to be a liar. Because if you deny sin, you're denying that God created this beautiful world to exist in perfection and beauty, and you're not understanding yourself because obviously we don't do that to the full. And so we're making God out to be a liar, and we're lying about ourselves. So we need to get real about sin. We need to talk openly about that. We need to be honest about that, have authenticity on this topic. And John is going to lay out four specific ways that we can do that. I think this is really helpful 
uh, that John walks through. Okay, if we're going to get real about sin, here's some things we need to do, whether that's in your marriage or in your friendships or with God or wherever it is. Um, we've got to name and claim our sin, confess our sin, find freedom from sin in Christ, and leave patterns of sin behind. So I'm just going to walk through those things and show how they play out in the passage. So here's the first one. Name and claim our sin. Acknowledge our sin. It's the opposite of what John says in verse 8. If you see there, if, if we claim to be without sin, we're in the realm of fake belief, right? We, de- we deceive ourselves. We, we make God out to be a liar. So the flip side then is what he's encouraging us to do. Claim that we sin, be honest with ourselves, and, and receive that whole truth about yourself, about the world, about your neighbors. So it's about honesty, truthfulness, vulnerability, authenticity. It has nothing to do with accepting begrudgingly some, some condemning label and feeling horrible about that. Uh, it's about getting the truth out in the open. And knowing that that is a transformative thing to do. Uh, it's about accepting this diagnosis that's going to lead to adopting the right treatment plan, right? To even lead to healing. And I think that's true no matter what aspect of our lives we're looking at. If we can name it and claim it, the, way, the things that are broken, the things that are misaligned, then we're going to find the right treatment and find healing from God. Uh, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about the Be the Bridge cohorts that we've been having uh, at Warehouse. Uh, if you don't know what those have been about, it's, it's about gathering together to have really honest questions about race and naming, claiming racism and, and privilege and prejudice and all these things so that we can move toward a place of greater racial awareness and unity and reconciliation. And I was explaining to this person how, as a part of that process, it's really important for, for white people in particular to be, to be naming and claiming privilege and power and prejudice, how that's lodged in so deeply that we don't even realize those, those implicit biases. Um, and we have to accept that, that diagnosis, even though it's uncomfortable at times, if we really want to be motivated and free to pursue racial healing and unity. Um, But I think often we approach a a sin like racism like we address the overall problem, which is we say, well, it's not not my problem. I mean, I'm I'm not the one who's who's going out and doing racist things and saying racist things. I'm not, um, you know, if your intentions are good, it's not racism, right? Well, Okay, that, that sounds to me a lot like we're dodging the reality of all of the things uh, in my own heart that I don't even realize. Uh, the whole system that I'm a part of that I often don't even realize. All the implicit biases that are lodged within me. All of the, um, the, the, the history behind this that's woven into the fabric of our neighborhoods and our city. I mean, We've got to name it and claim it if we want to find freedom, if we want to be honest and have the truth. And then, of course, confess it in particular ways when that's fitting, find freedom in Christ from it, and leave patterns of that behind. Doing exactly what John is saying for particular sins in particular areas. And I would say the same is true with any other sin. So whatever you feel like you're wrestling with, it's the same process. Um, 
I'm keenly aware, you know, as our church is, is moving through major changes and shifts, that we need to name and claim the ways that it becomes really easy to sin against each other in the midst of change, uh, whether that's gossip or slander or making assumptions about each other. It might be subtle. We might not even realize it. But we need to acknowledge that when things are stressful, when things are changing, we are most likely to sin. And it's freeing to just put that out there and then have this awareness of, okay, so when it happens, I don't need to be afraid of that. It's a part of reality. But then I can be free to confess it and find freedom from it and leave it behind. Uh, But it starts with acknowledging uh, that it's a thing. Many of you know that one week ago, uh, Rachel Held Evans died. A popular Christian writer and speaker. She was 37 years old. I'm 37. She had the flu. She went into the hospital. She got medications. She reacted to it in a bizarre way, went into a coma, died of brain swelling. It is not the way it's supposed to be. And, and I know lots of people have been lamenting the loss of, of major Christian voices, Jean Vanier being another this week. But um, yeah, I was, I was really moved by many things that Rachel wrote. I think she was provocative at times. There's, there's room to debate her ideas, right? But she wrote some beautiful things. I hope that's her legacy. And just to honor her legacy, I wanted to read a section from one of her books, um, not just to honor her, but because she addresses sin in this in some beautiful ways. Um, it's from a book, came out about four years ago. It's called Searching for Sunday. And she's charting her journey of loving the church and then being fed up with the church and then returning to church again. And, and she has a section in there that I'm going to read in full because I think it really intersects beautifully with, with what we're unpacking today. So she says this. The other day I was asked in a radio interview why I'm still a Christian. Since I've never been shy about writing through my questions and doubts, the host wanted to know why I hang on to my faith in spite of them. I talked about Jesus, naturally. His life, teachings, death, resurrection, and presence in my life and in the world. I talked about how faith is always a risk and how the story of Jesus is a story I'm willing to risk being wrong about. And then I said something that surprised me a little, even as the words left my mouth. I'm a Christian, I said, because Christianity names and addresses sin. It acknowledges the reality that the evil we observe in the world is also present within ourselves. It tells the truth about the human condition, that we're not okay. And she says, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed, instructed James, the brother of Jesus. At its best, the church functions much like a recovery group, a safe place where a bunch of struggling, imperfect people come together to speak difficult truths to one another. Sometimes the truth is that we have sinned as individuals. Sometimes the the truth is that we have sinned corporately as a people. Sometimes the truth is we're hurting because of another person's sin or as a result of forces beyond our control. Sometimes the truth is we're hurting and we just don't know why. The practice of confession 
gives us the chance to admit to one another that we're not okay, and then to seek healing and reconciliation together in community. No one has to go first. Instead, we take a deep breath and we start together with a prayer of confession. And then she leads her, re- her readers through one. And I would love to lead us through one. I think we're far enough along in the, the sermon today to acknowledge we need this. Uh, you're probably naming, I'm hoping you're naming and claiming things already in your own mind and heart. It's freeing to take this next step of confession. So this is from the Book of Common Prayer. That's been transformative to a lot of people as they learn this practice of confession. Would you say this out loud with me and make it yours? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. So we just did the second part. We name and claim things, sometimes very specifically, and then we confess. Confessing sin, it can be general like we've just done, and I think that's helpful at times because we have this condition of, of being sinful that's good to name, while simultaneously we have this condition of being freed by grace. Uh, so confession and assurance, they go together. Um, but then doing that very specifically as well, whether that's personally just between you and God or with your spouse or a friend or with, with your small group, that's good too. In very, very specific. Because John writes in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And God does that because, a couple verses later, uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And the idea there is that Jesus solved the sin problem once and for all. Uh, And he did that by dying for us as a sacrifice for sin so that he can be our advocate, so he can be the one to offer us forgiveness, salvation, and new life. Forgiveness and purification are the two words that John uses there. I think um, they're beautiful words. We'll get to them in a second. But, so he's moving very quickly from the, the second action of confession to the third one of when you confess, you find freedom from that sin in Christ because he offers immediately forgiveness and purification. So two really beautiful images there from different areas of life. Forgiveness is from uh, the the legal world. It's a legal and and almost financial word uh, that means being released from a debt. And this is something, I I mean, I think we're fairly familiar with this in our everyday lives. A lot of you I know have student loans, which means you have a debt and you have a responsibility to pay it back. And some of you may have even adopted into a program that would allow for loan forgiveness. It's a beautiful thing. To be, I have five years left until mine, I can apply for student loan forgiveness. But the idea is you still have a debt and it's released, right? Well, m- maybe you still have to pay taxes, but you're released from, from that specific debt. And a similar thing is going on when the biblical writers talk about forgiveness 
yet in a spiritual sense, that we have a, a debt to God because of, our, because of this weight of sin. And um, rather than having us make a certain number of moral payments to show our good intentions, like, yeah, if you're good for a while and I sort of monitor that, then I'll forgive you. The idea is God makes all the payments up front, all of it debt released, gone, forgiven forever, don't think about it again kind of loan forgiveness. Complete forgiveness, freeing us to love, which we'll talk about later as the result of this process, freeing us to walk in the way of Jesus out of gratitude rather than out of obligation. It's what makes Christianity so unique. What Rachel goes on to say in her book is, is, yeah, I'm still a Christian because it names sin and it frees you in such unique ways to live in this way of love after Jesus. So that's the forgiveness image. It's beautiful. It's, it's rich. There's a lot more to say. Purification is another image. It's one we're probably less familiar with in our world today because it's coming from this very specific Jewish world of, of the Old Testament. Uh, because in that time, the people of God understood that anything that does damage to the vibrant wholeness of shalom makes us impure. So any way that I contribute to the breaking of that fabric makes me unclean or impure. And so this elaborate sacrificial system was put in place to deal with that so that uh, ultimately God could be in the presence of his people because God can't be in the presence of impurities. So that, that's the background. And as the New Testament writers like John and others reflect on the work of Jesus, they're making this point that the sacrificial system was never a, a final solution to this issue of impurity because it only did that externally. It didn't cleanse us inwardly in this holistic, final kind of way. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews talks a lot about this. Here's one beautiful uh, section where he says, The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial and clean sanctify them so that they are, or purify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve a living God. I think that's so beautiful uh, because not only does the purification we, we receive as a result of confessing our sin uh, restore our relationship with God through Christ, but it, it frees us to serve a living God. It sets us free in that path of love. And that's the last point. And really, all that John is going to talk about the rest of the letter is, is love. I mean, he weaves different themes in and out, but his main theme is love. We need to leave these patterns of sin behind and walk in patterns of love and newness of life. In fact, in the verses that follow our passage, he dives right into that. Uh, this is 1 John 2.4. It says, We can claim we know God but not live for him. So whoever says, I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. So a couple ways we can have fake belief. One is that we can deny that we're sinful. The other is we can not do what results from being freed from sin, which is to love God, love our neighbor, the essence of the commands. That's the basis of what God commands, and in in terms of that big vision of how God created the world, that is what advances shalom rather than does damage or vandalism to shalom, is if we seek the good of our neighbor, if we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
Those are healing things. Those are beautiful things. And it's, it's not that we do that perfectly. After we find freedom from sin in Christ, we still continue to sin. We still struggle with it. But our basic orientation has changed. Rather than having our, our basic orientation be that we are shalom breakers, our basic orientation now is that we are shalom healers and advancers and lovers because we're united to Christ and we know God, and this is how he reorients us. So for all of those reasons and more that I don't have time to get into, it's really important that we get real about sin, that we, we do that on a, on a personal level as we have those most intimate conversations with God, that we do that with our closest friends and our spouse, that we do that with the other groups that we meet with because this is the path to real love. Unless we get real about sin, we're not going to get real about love. Unless we get real about sin, we're not going to find the freedom of forgiveness. Unless we do that and we grapple with that, we won't really get our need for Jesus and genuinely be free. Now, we might disagree on what is a sin and, and what departs from God's design. All those conversations are good to have, too. Better to put it in the open, name it, claim it, and, claim it, and dialogue it, uh, so that we can find true freedom. I'm just going to end with, I mentioned that book by Cornelius Plantiga earlier. So, so good. And if, if you're willing to read that book, oh man, I shouldn't actually make this offer. I was going to say, I will buy you a copy. Like, it's that... It's that important, and maybe I'm going to stick to that because it's, it was transformative for my life, and I think it would be for yours too. So he writes, Without full disclosure on sin, the gospel of grace becomes impertinent, unnecessary, and finally, just uninteresting. So if anything else this morning, get real about sin so your life is more interesting, and on a deeper level, that you would truly find the meaning of grace and embrace Jesus and the life that he has for you. So let me pray for that. God, thanks for, by your spirit, nudging us to be real with you and with each other. It's a a difficult process because it means uh, mess and misunderstanding and conflict. Uh, But we believe those things, if we if we put them out there, if we name and claim the things that, um, that are moving in the opposite direction of love, that there's going to be freedom in that. So move us to do that, to confess our sin to you, to each other, and to realize and to embrace, to receive the freedom from you that follows of forgiveness and purification and the gift of the Spirit. Spirit who empowers us to leave the the patterns of sin behind and embrace, embrace and even in faulting ways, this new pattern of love. Empower this church forward, Spirit. Give us more grace. Give us more honesty. Teach us how to confess. Give us space for that. And be gracious to us in the process. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Warehouse 242 podcast. If you have any questions or want to find out more about Warehouse, visit warehouse242.org or come join us on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 2307 Wilkinson Boulevard in Charlotte. Thanks for listening.